Greetings, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I'll be your host today without uh, Christina, uh, my favorite host, Christina Susama. I will be uh, your special guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy. And today we have a special guest with us uh, who is in an encore performance, actually, Dr. Andrew Binder. Those of you that didn't meet him last time, uh, he is a specialty consultant with the Santa Barbara Sleep uh, Clinic, and he is also the medical director for the Ventura Sleep uh, Medicine Center, Sleep Disorder Center. Uh, he was with us on episode 16, and we had so many requests to have him back uh, to speak about more sleep disorders that I thought it would be very good, and he was gracious enough to uh, accept the invitation, and he will be with us today. Unfortunately, Christina Susama will not be with us, but I do uh, want to mention to everyone that uh, you should watch her show on Wednesdays, Trinity of Life. It is Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So uh, without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce to everyone my special guest, Dr. Andy Bender. Greetings, Andy. Hi, Glenn. Hello, everyone. Hi. Ah, welcome. I'm sorry you don't get the uh, great benefit of being with Christina. We always enjoy that part. But uh, you and I will solo it today. We'll... We'll muddle through. Right. We'll muddle through, exactly, and people will uh, still hopefully get a lot out of this. So um, as the medical guide, I always like to talk about our directions for the day. I don't always know if they're going to happen, but at least uh, we have some uh, path to take. Uh, because we got to know you last time, and I recommend again to everyone, if you didn't uh, see the first episode, episode 16, uh, that you should go back and watch that. There's a lot of great information on basics and theories about sleep and sleep disorders. Uh, today we're going to get into a little of that, and then we'll get into some specific disorders so that uh, the people that have a lot of these problems can figure out some uh, ways to go about uh, relieving issues. Sound all right with you, Andy? That's fine. Good. You know, instead of getting people to know you and how you became a specialist in sleep medicine. Maybe we could spend a moment or two so that you can give us a description of what sleep medicine is about, what you see in a daily day, what kind of practice you have, and uh, what kind of complaints people come to you with. Certainly. Um, <clears throat> you know, we spend uh, probably a third of our life in bed sleeping or trying to sleep, and uh, it was an area of medicine which was really ignored and uh, by traditional medicine for a long time, and there were a lot of mythologies about sleep, but there's probably nothing that impacts our daytime function as much as what happens when we're sleeping or not sleeping. So sleep medicine finally uh, developed over the last 25, 30 years, uh, and has really blossomed more recently, um, to uh, address a lot of the uh, sleep issues. And fortunately, our specialty has finally uh, come around to 
classifying and organizing the sleep disorders in a in a manageable fashion. Um, and I say that with some trepidation, with the fear <laughs> that at the next meeting they're going to reclassify it just the way the uh, infectious disease people keep renaming all the uh, bacteria and viruses that we that we struggle to learn, and then they change the name, so uh, it's impossible to keep up with. Um, and there was a period of time when the classification in sleep disorders was absolutely incomprehensible, and fortunately they came to their senses. So um, I think the way we divide the sleep disorders is probably not a not a bad way to begin, because um, uh, let me say that when we talk about a sleep disorder, the first thing that comes to people's mind is insomnia. And that is indeed one of the categories of sleep disorders and probably um, probably represents the, the largest portion of the population. And certainly if you take the Gallup poll and look at uh, complaints, um, uh, complaints of insomnia certainly head the list of uh, sleep complaints. But... Uh, so think of that as the first of six categories. The second category, though, is both a symptom as well as a class, as a uh, group of disorders called the not insomnia but hypersomnia. That is sleepiness, um, mm. and that's probably, I think, the most important symptom of a sleep disorder. That is being sleepy during the day, and I will come back to that. But let me just pause for a moment and talk about a typical patient that I would see in the office would be the snoring patient who is there usually under duress from his wife. And he says, he says, I don't have a sleep problem. I'm only here because my wife complains about my snoring. I don't think I snore. I think it's her problem. In fact, I can sleep any place, any time. <laughs> And that is, and that is really typical. That um, it's wrong to be able to sleep any place, any time. If you can sleep easily during the day, then you have a sleep disorder because you should not be able to sleep during the day. It's not something you can train yourself to do. It's something that you do only because you are sleeping. So, so we have the insomnias, which, which really are defined as difficulty either initiating sleep difficulty maintaining sleep, waking up too early, and resulting in a feeling of being unrested in the morning. And you can have any combination of those things. So that would classify uh, the insomnias. The hypersomnias are really uh, excessive daytime sleepiness, which I plan on talking about a little bit more. Um, and this is sleepiness that is not due to uh, disrupted sleep at night. So if you're sleepy because you have sleep apnea, that would not be a hypersomnia. You would be sleepy, but your sleep disorder would be sleep apnea. And which brings me to the third category. The third category is the, um, the sleep apneas or the sleep-related breathing disorders. And the most classic one is the one associated with snoring, but there are some more complex types of breathing disorders related to medications such as narcotics where um, it's not that you just snore and block your airway, but you actually, um, your respiratory control center uh, is misfiring, sort of like a, um, like a thermostat that never quite gets it right. 
doesn't get, it's either too hot or too cold. And that's really what happens with the, we call the central sleep apneas and often most commonly caused by narcotic medication. The fourth category uh, really is the sleep-related movement disorders, and that is people who, uh, when they're sleeping, are moving around or trying to sleep. They can't stop moving, and this is the one that people are familiar with from the advertisements of restless leg syndrome. So we have restless leg syndrome and its associated condition of periodic limb movements uh, of sleep. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It's an important disorder, very much more complicated than, and serious than people think. Um, the fifth uh, group, that I might, do I have one, two, three, four? Yeah, the fifth group would be the parasomnias. This is like sleepwalking. Um, hmm. Bedwetting is also in this category. But the sleepwalking, and they have to be distinguished from seizures, which can mimic sleepwalking. Um, but this is an interesting uh, group of disorders and also important. So hopefully maybe people will have some questions about that. And then the final, the final group of disorders is what we call the circadian rhythm disorders, meaning um, circadian, meaning the, the biorhythm, your sleep-wake schedule. And this is something that almost every parent has or will have to deal with when they have their teenager <laughs> uh, staying up at 3 o'clock uh, or four o'clock in the morning and then not being able to get up, um, uh, for school or anything else in the morning. And that's called, uh, delayed sleep phase syndrome. You it also includes jet lag, uh, shift work. Um, so these are, these are very important. And I would say that probably 75% of the population probably has, does things wrong when it comes to trying to maintain the integrity of their, their, uh, uh, sleep-wake schedule. So that's kind of the overview of the types of disorders we uh, we deal with. And I'm at that with that overview, I'm uh, I'd like to just jump in and let Glenn. You ask me uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, I think you covered everything, so it was great <laughs> to have you here, uh, <laughs> and thank you. Now, actually, that that was a very good summary. But I w I want to ask now. You brought up something about. Uh, people maintaining the integrity of sleep. And it seems as you speak that sleep disorders affect us throughout the entire uh, circle or circadian rhythm of the day, partly when we're asleep and partly when we're awake. So I, I have two questions. One is how does a person maintain their integrity of sleep? And also within that, could you answer how the lack of sleep affects our daily health? That might be two separate questions. It's two separate questions. So let's talk a little bit about the circadian rhythm because uh, this is where I think the self-help, the self-help books and articles I think fall short. And in fact, even in a nice review, uh, there was a whole article in the Wall Street Journal about a week ago about the unraveling the science of sleep, and it kind of reviewed sleep medicine and the importance of it. And um, it was written by a reporter who had done a lot of homework and talk to all the right experts. But even then, he got it wrong because um, the most important thing we can do if you have any issues with sleep is you have to maintain a consistent time of awakening. You have to wake up by the clock. So you need to look at your life and decide, when do I have to get up to get my 
work done, get to the office on time, take care of my kids, get them to school, whatever it is. And that should be the time you get up every morning or at least no later than that time. Sometimes you'll wake up earlier than that time, but it's important to get up at the at about the same time every day. And it's not just getting up at the same time. You have to expose, let your eyes and your retina be exposed to daylight because that's really what sets the clock. And everything else is an, everything else is set by that point when you get up. Now, we talked about this, I think, a little bit on the first session, um, but we have inside of us, in our brain, part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, we have an internal rhythm, and everybody's a little different. It's Think of it as a 24-hour uh, hourglass, you know, with the sand dripping out, and mm -hmm. at the end of 24 hours plus, the clock will cycle back again. In other words, the, our intrinsic rhythm is close to 24 hours, but not exactly 24 hours, and it's always a little longer than 24 hours. Hmm. Okay. What that, means, what that means is it has every morning, the clock has to be reset, or in, we call it entrained, so it's back on schedule, because the people whose clock runs very slow, they turn out to be a constitutional night out. The people whose clock runs closer to the 24 hours, they're the morning people. It's genetically set. But even a night owl can be trained to operate in the morning, and even a, even a, a morning person can be trained to you know, uh, have a later, a later shift. But it all depends on when your retina sees daylight, and that's what starts the signal off. Um, think of it like this. If you have a, a cheap watch, which is the only kind I buy, usually at the drug <laughs> Um, and say it loses, say it, it runs a half hour l slow every day. And if I go to work and I, the clock is say, I reset the clock in the morning and I go to work over the first eight hours, I'm going to lose in the course of the day, I'll lose, um, you know, 10 minutes. Well, mm -hmm. nobody's going to be surprised if their doctor is 10 minutes late for their appointment. In fact, they'd probably be shocked if I was within 10 minutes of the scheduled time. Um, thrilled. Right, thrilled. So they, so it's not a big deal. And then you go, then if, in the evening, you know, you're 20 minutes behind before by the time of bedtime. And again, no big deal. And then overnight, again, you lose the, the last, last 30 minutes. Now, if you don't reset your clock, your watch in the morning, now you're an hour behind. And now it starts to have an Im impact. And that's mm -hmm. what people who don't reset their clock are doing what we call free running. And they will get progressively more and more misaligned with their life. And that's kind of what people do who sleep late on weekends. So it's important to keep the clock set even on weekends. It's much healthier to, uh, if you're staying up late on the weekends for social reasons, it's still much better to get up early. And if you have to grab a, grab a short nap in the midday, that won't throw off your clock. So that's, the, uh, that's kind of the most important thing uh, for people who have problems and in most of my insomniacs, um, that's an issue. Uh, they they sleep late. You know, when they finally do fall asleep, they sleep late, and then they're they have no prayer. Um, that, so that, that that's kind of the uh, that would be my. I think I ended last last uh, session 
with my, that being the advice. And I still think that's one of the most important thing. It's not, you should go to sleep when you're sleepy. And if you're doing something and it's keeping you awake and you're overstimulated, you got to kind of pull back a little bit, back off and wait till you get sleepy. Um, because if you're too amped up, you won't be able to go to sleep. But even if you have short sleep, it's still important to get up at the same time um, every day. All right. So that I think that deals with the um, kind of maintaining the integrity of our circadian rhythm. Okay. Um, beautifully, beautifully, I must say. Uh, it's a, it remains a great piece of advice. Well, thank you. Um, then the question comes, what, what is the impact of bad sleep, either insufficient sleep or fragmented sleep, disrupted sleep? And it turns out this is a major stress on all the organ systems. The ones we've have had the most evidence for, of course, were cardiovascular and, um, but also metabolic. So in cardiovascular, we know that insufficient sleep um, raises all our stress hormones uh, and increases our risk for cardiovascular disease, increased risk of heart heart attack, stroke. Um, so it has a long-term damaging effect, and I think that's become becoming more and more appreciated now. And it's not just disorders like sleep apnea. It's just people who just, for whatever reason, because of their lifestyle, don't get enough sleep. So that one we know, and we've actually unraveled some of the mechanisms for it, but it definitely goes through all the the whole stress pathway, um, which is continuously being uh, better elucidated. We, we see the blood vessels become less elastic and less um, uh less uh, able to uh, uh, dilate um, when uh, sleep is disrupted. Uh, the other thing that it does, and this everybody I think can appreciate, is it causes a cognitive impairment. The sleepy, mm. the sleepy brain essentially is a brain with attention deficit disorder. And that is one of my pet peeves, is that uh, too many of my colleagues will diagnose a patient and treat a patient for attention deficit disorder, not just in pediatrics, but adults, and they have never even considered that the source of the ADD is actually the sleep disorder. So I think that that is an area which is going to have to be better. Um, there's going to have to be better education and a little bit more research uh, for, the, uh, for, the medical, for the medical community. Before, before you go forward, uh, would you suggest that anybody that uh, is diagnosed with uh, an ADD or an ADHD or any type of deficit disorder also get evaluated for sleep disorders before they uh, begin other treatments? Yes. As a matter of fact, I would. I think that but it, the evaluation would be really a um, – would be a, at, least, at least some screening – some screening questionnaires if it's a primary care doctor or, um, you know, the psychiatrists who see the patients. I think that they need to uh, at least stop a moment and say, ask a few questions about the person's um, sleep um, and sleep habits. So the answer is uh, yes. Uh, the, the editor of our main journal, uh, uh, coincidentally, uh, the title of the journal is Sleep. Um, and this uh, Dr. David Dinges, D-I-N-G-E-S, uh, is a brilliant guy. And he's actually not an MD. He's a, um, a PhD research psychologist. Um, 
and he has done some elegant studies as well as um, uh, breaching the uh, the divide between the medical doctors and the PhD community. So he can read their research and translate their research and data into ways that physicians can understand and, and hopefully vice versa. And he's, he's demonstrated very clearly um, that uh, you take a normal person and sleep deprive them experimentally, um, and they will, in fact, uh, test out indistinguishable from the characteristics of ADD and ADHD. We know in kids with, uh, and I mentioned this the last time, kids with uh, big tonsils and who snore and have sleep apnea, they are often being diagnosed with a ten, uh, ADD, and when their tonsils are taken out, the symptoms will uh, will go away. Of course, that's just one sleep disorder, and there are other there are other sleep reasons a kid may be sleep deprived, but uh, that's the most common one. In fact, uh, an abstract that I saw uh, from a meeting, um, and I haven't seen the actual publication uh, of the article, showed that both by uh, functional imaging of the brain, as well as uh, neurocognitive neuropsych testing, uh, these kids had ADD, and when they had their tonsils taken out, the both the imaging and the testing uh, reverted uh, to normal, normalized. So I think that's really, um, I think that's an um, an important area, and clearly being neglected and mis mismanaged. Um, and then finally. Uh, very, we've always suspected, and our and our mothers kind of told us this um, that if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to be more prone to um, more prone to getting sick. And so we've had this we've had this sense that maybe uh, sleep disruption will impair immunity, and um, and uh, and there's some scientific uh, experimental uh, support for that recently published uh, in our in our literature and they did a study with people getting vaccinated for uh, hepatitis B and you know as you know Glenn these are a series of vaccinations and they retested people to see if their antibody levels have responded appropriately and they did a um, there's a large study and they and they used an outpatient um, measure of activity called actigraphy hmm. and they can just tell they can't tell if somebody's really sleeping or not, but they can at least tell if they're not moving. And so it probably overestimates sleep because a lot of people will, will be laying in bed, not moving, and be awake. But it at least gives you um, the maximum amount of sleep a person's getting. And they showed in this group of people prospectively who were being vaccinated that the group that had quantitatively less downtime Less less time periods of inactivity. So by definition, they were their sleep was limited because you know they, the amount of time they weren't moving wasn't very much. Uh, those people had a a, a sub suboptimal um, response to the vaccine vaccine. So so it looks like their their immunity their immune response was in fact impaired, uh, correlating with the uh, lack of sleep. So I think that's very exciting stuff, and it just shows how important. Sleep is a homeostatic need and drive, just like thirst and hunger. We all know if if if, if you don't drink enough, it affects you. If you don't uh, eat enough, it affects you. 
And or if you eat or drink too much, it affects you. So sleep is the uh, sleep is right up there. It's a basic biological need. You cannot you cannot train yourself to do without it. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. The way to think of that as uh, just like eating and drinking and breathing. Do all of the uh, or many of the sleep disorders need to be seen by a sleep specialist or to be uh, diagnosed in a sleep lab? Well, there there are two questions about that, and and this I will have some personal biases. Um, um, Bring it on. Okay. Um, I think that given the way medicine is going now, uh, uh, with physicians having less and less time to, uh, uh, to spend with patients, sleep, sleep issues are, are going to be neglected and patients will complain about, they may complain to the doctor about insomnia, but most primary care doctors are ill-equipped to, to deal with it. So I think, personally, unless you're in a very rural area where there's just no access to a sleep specialist, I think the sleep issues should be addressed by a sleep specialist, just the way I think somebody who has may have coronary artery disease should be seen by a cardiologist. Um, um, and I recognize that, that people say, well, we just don't have the resources, but but I think that uh, I think that um, uh, that's not. I think I think this. Uh, I think specialists will do a better job and be more efficient in doing it. In general, now a particular primary care doctor has an interest and knowledge in sleep, then and they want to take it on by all means. But I think that once you've identified somebody who may have a sleep disorder, I think. Before the, the primary care doctor should not be sending them for a sleep test, um, because a sleep test is not like a blood count. It's not like a chemistry panel. It really should be interpreted by a physician who actually knows what he's looking for. And um, and however. This is going. Not everybody's doing that. And you ask the other question: Does it have to be done in a in a sleep center? There's been a big push, and this is where my my opinion, my bias comes in. There's been a big move, and it's been going on for ten years, maybe even longer, uh, to try to uh, do home testing. Um, I don't. I think this is false economy. I don't think that the out of out of uh, lab, out of center testing is very, very good, and I think it only is effective at, at diagnosing patients with sleep apnea who you already know have sleep apnea. In other words, <laughs> right. who already have a high probability of having sleep apnea, uh, it, it, it will be, it'll confirm that diagnosis. But to me, the amount of money you save, because those people more times than not will have to be tested ultimately in a lab, Anyway, uh, a small percentage you can do it all. It's an outpatient, and I think a lot of conditions will be um, will be missed. I kind of look at it. I make the analogy of um, of a plain a plain X-ray versus a CT or an MR scan. You know, f- for you and I, much of my early training, we didn't have CT scans and MRI scans. But if you really need to know what's going on, 
you you ultimately need need to know the anatomy. The MRI is is better. Um, an MRI of a in Santa Barbara, the MRI uh, of a uh, I just looked this up um, of a shoulder um, is going to cost the insurance price not the, the insurance list price is going to be in the order of fifteen hundred dollars. Um, and if you want to pay cash, it'll be eight hundred to a thousand dollars. A sleep study where somebody, a technician, is, is observing you all night, making sure that the electrodes pop off, uh, they're put back on, so you get all the information, you know, after the patient and the technician has spent the whole night, costs seven or $800. So I don't think, I don't think a sleep study is over you know, is overpriced. And I think the amount of information you get compared to other diagnostic tests is a bargain. So I, I don't, the big push for this home testing, I'm not a fan. Uh, there are some type of screening tests that you might want to do. And I think that in certain situations that um, a home screening test, like if a person needs to be convinced, uh, then yes, you can do it. But by and large, I think by the time you do a sleep test, you've been seen by a sleep specialist, he says, you know, there are some questions I can't answer unless I do a sleep test. You do the, you do the, you do the right test. So, um, so there's a big push now, and uh, the insurance companies love it because they think they're going to be saving money. But in fact, um, <clears throat> time this has been looked at objectively, it didn't save money. <laughs> so, right. So. At a lot of the conferences that I go to, and I'm sure you go to, there's a lot of pushes for these uh, home instrumentations and uh, home diagnostics. Uh, many companies are trying to make all of these uh, to make the diagnosis, but I agree with you. But I just want to be clear on one point uh, to make sure that this is correct for our viewers. Uh, part of what you're saying is primary care doctor that's interested in sleep medicine and knows something about it can do certain things, uh, which is okay. But if they decide that there is a possible sleep disorder, that instead of sending their uh, patient to a sleep lab, they should go through a sleep medicine doctor first who will then take them through the sleep lab, maybe just like a cardiologist where you would want to have them see a cardiologist before getting uh, some kind of uh, aortogram or something else. Is that right? So you're saying basically that the sleep medicine doctor should be seen before a lab test ordered by someone who's not a sleep medicine doctor. Absolutely. I'll give you, okay. I'll give you a very obvious, a very obvious, uh, example. This, this is just one. So a patient comes to their primary care doctors. They say they sleepy, they snore. The primary care doctor says, geez, sounds like sleep apnea orders a sleep test. The problem is the primary care doctor didn't point, didn't never ask the patient or might have forgotten that the patient's a shift worker. Mm -hmm. so you're sending the patient for a sleep study at a time when he's normally going to be awake and right. unable to right. sleep. Would know that, and therefore would would has two choices. He he either would schedule the test specifically for the time when the person is not doing shift work at the end, right before he goes back to his shifts, uh, to where he's almost transitioned to a more normal schedule. 
Or, as we used to be able to do in my lab, if I had somebody who worked consistently at nights and slept well during the day, I would do the sleep study during the day. I could do that. Mm. Uh, I'd do the nighttime test during the day. But otherwise, you send the person there, and, and basically you have the, uh, you know, the, the patient on one end of the video camera and the, the, the technician at the other end of the video camera. They're staring at each other. Nobody's asleep, and nobody's very happy. <laughs> So I, I promised our uh, viewers that we would get into some actual uh, studies today, and that was uh, one of the requests that we had. Uh, let's talk about sleep apnea, since they, that seems to be very big now. Uh, the first question I have is, snoring is not necessarily sleep apnea, correct? Yes, it's, it's a warning sign, just like, just like the, uh, you know, the, the oil kind of like the oil uh, warning light on your car. Um, it, if somebody snores, it raises the possibility uh, that they have sleep apnea, but, but it doesn't mean that they do have sleep apnea. And conversely, somebody who doesn't snore can also have sleep apnea. So, mm. so, it's, uh, so and it's not, there's no correlation with how loud you snore and how bad your apnea is. In fact, when you think about it, it makes sense. If you're snoring, you're breathing. Correct. <laughs> snoring, but you're not breathing. <laughs> so right. it's, the pause, it's the pauses in between the snores that's that's actually uh, critical. So so um, the, yeah, there's there's a screening. There are screening questions and specific questions and associations with the snoring that will help improve your ability to predict whether that person has significant sleep apnea or not. I think in all of this, one of the senses that I'm getting about being a specialty of sleep medicine is that uh, it's pretty serious and complicated, and people should take it more seriously. You know, we look at snoring, we just go, oh, I'm snoring. You know, okay, it's loud, it's or somebody else hears it or whatever, but no big deal, whereas we should be actually thinking, big deal. You know, based on some of the things you said before, affecting all of the organs, affecting the cardiovascular, possibly now learning that it affects the immune system and everything else. So uh, I think that's pretty important to start thinking that sleep disorders are as important as cardiovascular disorders. Right. And, um, I, you know, I, I've mentioned um, I may have mentioned that there's a uh, there was a stunning article from Indonesia, which showed that people admitted to the hospital, in their hospital with acute um, ST elevation myocardial infarctions, you know, the, the transmural heart attacks, and they went and then evaluated what percentage of those people had sleep apnea, you know, either recognized or unrecognized, and um, the percentage was stunningly high. Um, wow. I think, I think it was like 75%. Uh, it, it's, it's dramatic. And I think that... Um, I think that's right, but you know, I have to. I think back to one of the um, uh, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby back in the '50s did a comedy scene, and you may have it was on. I had this on a uh, on a you know an long playing 33 RPM vinyl record, uh, vinyl record, and I had lost mine. But uh, but uh, at Stanford, uh, Bill Dement, the uh, the founder of the Stanford Sleep Center, um, he had it and played it, and and. And so people may may or may not have heard it. He does this imitation of his father coming home. His father was having a big burly guy coming back from the bars 
and clomping up the stairs. They called him the giant. And then he would he would go uh, he would go in his room and he'd start snoring. And then he would stop breathing, and the whole everybody in the family would say, "Dad, breathe!" You know, and, and he, would, <laughs> he would do this incredible um, uh, rendition and impersonation of the patient with classic sleep apnea. And yet that was uh, you know twenty twenty plus years before we even had a name for sleep apnea or even recognized it as a medical problem. So you're right. It was funny. And, um, but it was, uh, but it took us a long time. It's taken us a long time to realize the, uh, the, uh, consequences of untreated severe sleep apnea. And a quick shout out to Bill Cosby, who was profound in many ways in many areas. Let's, uh, let's get more into sleep apnea now and the snoring part. First of all, a lot of people just figure before they go to the sleep doctor, oh, I'm snoring. Uh, let's go to the pharmacy. There's a section where you could go sleep ease, snore ease, you know, all of these instruments that you could put on, tapes that you could put on your face, things to put around you. Uh, does anything work in the, uh, in the over-the-counter? Yeah, not, not really. Um, I think if somebody has uh, snoring-associated only when they have nasal obstruction, and there will be a percentage, a, a finite number of people who will not have significant sleep apnea except when their nose is stuffed, because when your nose is stopped up, you'll, your mouth will open, and, and that will shift your, your, your tongue backwards, and, uh, and maybe like the straw that breaks the camel's back. That, that, um, so in those people, um, you know, the, uh, those uh, uh, breathe right strips, which which open up the uh, nasal airway a bit. Uh, sometimes people will get some some relief uh, from that, and then they have all the you have people who have only snore when they're on their back, and so they various devices to keep you sleeping on your side. You know, and those will, those can work in selected in selected individuals, but um, more times than not, uh, these things will not be uh, successful. But I think that uh, trying them and failing. Is, is probably uh, useful information for the sleep doctor. You know, if they tell me, well, I tried this and I tried the nasal sprays, and I, and uh, I just would say that the um, the if uh, nowadays if if those folks go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor and say I'm snoring, most of the uh, uh, you know most of the reputable um, uh, ENT ear, nose, and throat specialists will actually insist on getting a sleep evaluation before uh, they do any kind of surgical intervention. Beautiful. And that's a great segue into the next part. There are so many uh, options that people are bombarded with having uh, surgery of the palate, laser surgery, something to do with nasal polyps, as you mentioned, uh, maybe even things where you're changing the dental and the jaw structure. Uh, what's What do you recommend for people? Well, you have to know what you're dealing with. And so you have to know what the severity of the sleep apnea is and what the effect of the body position is and what the effect of a specific sleep stage is before you make any treatment decisions. And you have to examine the patient and look at their anatomy. Um, I had a, uh, an, I think I mentioned this last time, I had an Asian a man without an ounce of body fat. I mean, he probably didn't weigh 100 pounds. And, uh, but because of his cranial facial structure, um, which is part, you know, in, in certain ethnicities have a uh, predisposition. Um, he had, his apnea had, uh, had a hundred interruptions 
in his sleep related to breathing per hour. So, and he, and I'm saying he weighed 95 pounds. So you have to kind of know the, you know, you have to know the anatomy and you have to know what, you know, what the, how severe the sleep apnea in everything in terms of how low does the oxygen go? How frequently do they stop breathing? And again, what the impact of, um, of the particular sleep stage is and, uh, what, and the body position. So you, those are all the decisions you have to consider. Um, I should also, and of course the person's age, the person's age. So it's, you have to look at the whole big picture. Um, it's not, I don't think this is amenable to a cookbook approach, you know, uh, algorithms and so forth. I think, uh, 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 will only get you, uh, will only get you so far. Um, I would point out that a few of the comorbid symptoms associated with snoring, which I maybe I'd like to point out to, uh, the audience. So snoring is, is one of the cardinal symptoms of sleep apnea. And some patients will have the benefit of a, uh, of a bed partner that observes or witnesses the actual pauses in breathing. Only uh, the rare or occasional patient will wake themselves up and, and know that they woke themselves up uh, from snoring. And that will be, that's an unreliable, uh, unreliable uh, symptom. You know, uh, but the the bed partner will know, and and they and and so it's very important, especially when men uh, are the patient. It's really important to get the women's um, the or the the women's bed partners, uh, female bed partners, because the women are much better observers uh, than the guys. Will always be in. Well, I know this is a generalization, but the guys will tend to be in denial, and the women are are much more uh, are much better observers. The problem is some bed partners are such sound sleepers that they they don't observe. Um, so, uh, so witness apneas and snoring are certainly are key. Um, the next thing, the other symptoms are a little less obvious. High blood pressure and acid reflux are commonly associated with significant sleep apnea. And, um, and to, uh, the, the hypertension, we know the mechanism, but a lot of people don't, a lot of doctors don't think about the acid reflux. And that's because when your airway is obstructed and you're sucking hard to pull air past the obstruction into your lungs, into your bronchial tree and down into the lungs, that same sucking effort is also sucking the stomach contents up into your chest. So sleep apnea is highly associated with, um, with acid reflux. Patients will, should be, if they have significant sleep apnea, will usually be tired. They'll be sleepy, but not always. That's sometimes it's denial. Sometimes it's it's just some remarkable resistance to loss of sleep, where people just don't seem to manifest have the manifestation of sleepiness um, objectively, not just subjectively. And that's those people are rare, but they do occur, and I have I have seen them. And then weight, weight is a is certainly a, an etiologic cause of sleep apnea. You will get frequently get the history that patients didn't have a snoring or got much worse when they gained another 10, 10 or 20 pounds. So those are the um, symptoms. And one final one, which, which I think is important um, and often missed, is having to get up at night to urinate. Now, a middle-aged guy who feels stressed, tired, snores, has high blood pressure, um, gets up at night to pee and has heartburn, would probably most primary care doctors say, well, 
that's what happens when you get to be middle-aged. <laughs> but everything associated with sleep apnea and, and, can re- and can reverse. The distinction in terms of urination is that the guy who's urinating at night because their prostate's gotten big will have the urge to, to pee, but the stream will be decreased and they won't pee a lot. You know, um, the patient who has, has a nocturia or, or your need to urinate at night, they'll pee, the stream will be, you know, will be adequate and they'll pee a lot. They'll have a high volume. And that's from the sleep apnea because um, not only is that, that sucking effort that you're making to suck air past the obstruction, not only is that uh, sucking stomach contents up and causing the heartburn, it's also creating more of a vacuum in your chest, and therefore your heart in this low atmospheric, sub-atmospheric pressure, the heart gets bigger. And when it gets bigger, it doesn't know why it's getting bigger. It just assumes it has too much blood on board. Too much. Yeah. And so the kidneys, through the uh, atrial natriuretic peptide, it tells the kidneys, dump fluid. So, so uh, one of the things that we find when people, when we treat their sleep apnea is they, they notice that their heartburn goes away and they're... Uh, and they're not peeing at night, so anyway, that's uh, that's my little my little uh, spiel on that. Yeah. That's good. I would I would be remiss if I did not uh, represent Christina when you mentioned that uh, women are much more observant and men are much more in denial. I'm sure she would have had some wonderful comments and agreements for you. So I will honor her by just acknowledging that at this moment. You talked about pressure for a moment, and that brings me to the next part, uh, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, which seems to be one of the mainstay treatments for sleep apnea that's non-surgical. And people have many problems with that. Uh, some are just the mechanical aspect of, of the equipment itself. Could you talk to us about the CPAP and the treatment and what the future is of that? Will there ever be something that's simple to use, that's not bulky? Okay. Uh, CPAP, as Glenn was saying, it is our best and main treatment for severe sleep apnea. And the good news is the worse the sleep apnea is, the easier it is for patients to adapt to CPAP. Um, um, the method, basically an individual wears a mask usually over the nose or a nozzle-like arrangement. Rarely, at least in my practice, only rarely do I use a mask that goes over the nose and the mouth. Um, in the field in general, I see that being used more than I think it should be, but be that as it may, the the uh, interface that is the mask or the uh, what we call nasal pillows devices, that is these little nozzles, um, have gotten very uh, small and lightweight and unobtrusive. The CPAP units themselves are also very small and very portable. The biggest problem is people do have to learn to adapt. And I think that 80% of the issue is preparing the patients for it. You need to have the right mask, you need to have the right pressure, and you need to have the right education. I see a lot of patients who have don't tolerate CPAP, and when I evaluate them, it's many of them probably should never have been put on CPAP. So when I put somebody on CPAP, 
they needed and the consequences of not using it are significant. That being said, there are individuals that have difficulty adapting to it. And there are methods for getting people to adapt. But sleep apnea is a chronic, it's a chronic illness and requires follow-up. It's not like uh, you don't mail somebody or order your CPAP mail order and walk away. It requires follow-up, especially in the first month of, of, of using it. But we get a sense of how well a person will adapt to CPAP by how well they adapt during the sleep study. And that usually tells me in advance if I have a patient that it's going to be easy or hard. And my experience is very different from what I read about in terms of getting people to adapt to CPAP. <clears throat> Most patients will say, it took a little getting used to it, but I, it's made such a difference in my life that I wouldn't, you know, it's worth it. And so I think that that's been more the rule than the uh, exception. But, and I won't go into all the exceptions, but I think CPAP will never, CPAP and positive pressure is not going away. It's not going to go away because um, uh, in a recent, even in a recent article, I saw we have different kinds, different ways of delivering positive pressure. CPAP one, there's others, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds now. There's bi-level or so-called BiPAP, and there's a newer level called adaptive servoventilation, or ASV, and these all have their specific uses. But if you have obstructive sleep apnea and it's severe and your oxygen level goes down, CPAP or positive pressure is going to be, uh, is going to be the, uh, the treatment that you're going to end up with. Except a lifesaver, huh? It's a lifesaver. However, I do want to say, since I have a lot of experience with this, um, if the sleep apnea is also uh, comorbid with uh, morbid obesity and with diabetes and high blood pressure and hyperlipidemia, then I would say the most successful uh, surgical treatment for sleep apnea in those se that setting would be bariatric surgery. That is weight loss surgery. And, mm. it, and I think that um, in the patient with that combination of so-called metabolic syndrome, um, I think bariatric surgery should be thought of sooner rather than later. And I think it's often delayed more than it should be. Excellent. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. According to uh, the National Sleep Foundation, there was a study that showed that uh, around 61% of menopausal women have sleep problems associated with hot flashes and severe night sweats. Is that something that a person should also see a sleep doctor for? Well, uh, that one's a tough one. I would say that I would rank that as one of my most challenging uh, challenging uh, patients. And I think that um, if a primary care doctor has a, a, a menopausal or perimenopausal patient complaining about disrupted sleep associated, you know, de novo, you know, uh -huh. with menopause, at that point, I'd be happy to have the primary care physician talk to them about the risks, benefits, of 
hormone replacement therapy because in a percentage of those people manage optimally so so you minimize the risks of hormone replacement therapy you can't get some some alleviation of the uh, of the insomnia but i will say even after menopause even after the menopausal hot flash symptoms go away uh women sleep just like men sleep but women sleep often will deteriorate compared to what it was like before and um i don't think we have the all the answers to that so um so I, if you can't if hormone replacement therapy is not an option or if it's failed then i think they probably uh do have to see a sleep specialist because uh insomnia requires usually behavioral attention um as and then perhaps pharmacologic intervention or uh, and a combination and this is i think the most one of the most big biggest challenges we have um uh in sleep medicine to my mind i would say that in almost every sleep disorder we talked about i feel very confident that in the vast majority of patients i will fix it uh insomnia is the one area where i have to accept that there's some people i for a range of reasons i'm not going to be able to fix them all i hope to improve it hope to reverse it but i but i i have to be humble and uh and 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 uh as clinicians would said sometimes a man's got to know his limitations <laughs> uh excellent quote i would uh, just to for our viewers and the audience the hormone replacement therapy issues sometimes could be a breast related cancer or an estrogen type of a cancer uh cardiovascular problems and strokes uh we would also want to mention just to be uh, a little more complete is that there could be many other causes of night sweats other than just quickly going to uh hormonal problems it could be an infection like tuberculosis it could be certain types of uh cancers uh there are some genetic disorders number of things so it is important to not to not ignore it and to take it seriously if it continues and have your doctor check it out One of the last things I'd like to talk about is it seems like in sleep medicine or in sleep many many years ago we would give a drug uh to just dull the brain and then we got a little more sophisticated with our sleeping medications to where we were looking at the actual parts of the brain that dealt with sleep and now we're looking at uh chemical messengers there are some medicines out there that are not on the market yet that are affecting the orexin system uh chemical messengers do you work with that at all well yeah I, I, that's a, a interesting point most of our most of our hypnotic medicines in the past have been uh effect worked on a part of the brain uh called the v we call it the VLPO which stands for ventral lateral preoptic nucleus and through a system of uh of gabaergic gamma amino butyric acid through and the benzodiazepine receptors and so we have the old benzodiazepines the restorils uh the clonopin those are benzodiazepines um then we had the benzodiazepine receptor agonists which are the ambiens and the um uh, lunesta drugs and then we had the antihistamines and and uh and then uh 
uh, some sedating, some sedating, the old an sedating antidepressant drugs like uh, Elevil, um, Doxepin. So that had been our mainstay. And some of them had their, they had their place and they had their uses, but um, they also had their limitations. And there's now a novel um, uh, medication uh, being developed, which works on a, uh, as an antagonist to the chemical orexin or hypocretin. Uh, one of the mediators in the uh, brain in the sleep-wake cycle is this uh, chemical called uh, orexin, and it's the chemical or the peptide that's missing in patients who have narcolepsy. So it's, it's, it's a direct um, messenger in the sleep-wake cycle, and its purpose is to stabilize the sleep and wake. That is, it tends to be, a, it's, it tends to be more of a wake-up drug, but it tends to activate and stabilize it so you don't keep switching back and forth of an unstable, an unstable state between sleep and wakefulness. And uh, patients who have uh, chronic insomnia, we often had the feeling that they had their erection was overactive, and these people seem to be hyper-aroused. So uh, there's research, and it looks promising, of a, of a, and the drug's called, um, right now I think it's called Suvorexant, S-U-R-E-X-A-N-T. And I think it's very exciting because it's the first really new approach to kind of calming down the brain that's not just a nonspecific downer. Exactly. And the risk, the risk of it would be that you don't want to create a narcoleptic, you know, so they're sleepy during the day and they have the intrusion of REM sleep inappropriate. But I think the key is that the drugs uh, will be out of the system. So during the daytime, the person's own uh, erection will be operational again, and uh, you're just trying to uh, calm it down at night. So the, the research... Um, seems promising, and I'll be very excited uh, to see it because uh, we, as I said, we don't have uh, our tools are uh, limited. Uh, behavioral techniques we know are important, and um, and our drugs have really not proven to be any more effective than than the behavioral techniques. But I can tell you, there are people who I know they're chemically, their brains are different. The patient with chronic insomnia, the patients who are um, depressed, their brains are switched on and they are, they're hyperactivated and you need something to cool it down. And, um, and I'm all for, uh, I'm all for pharmacology if it does the job. Uh, unfortunately, um, as I like to say, we haven't had a great sleeping pill. And the proof of that is if we'd had a great sleeping pill, we wouldn't have so many sleeping pills on the market. It's <laughs> a great point. Uh, it's coming to the end of our show, uh, and I would like to ask you again. You gave us a great tip last time. Do you have another health tip for us? Well, this one is um, – I thought about this, and I would say uh, when, uh, when people think about being tired, they say they're tired, and this is often the, what they complain to their doctor. I think they need to just determine and or their doctor needs to determine by questions um, – is your tiredness sleepiness because there's tiredness of, you know, being just having poor exercise tolerance. You know, I'm tired. I can't climb up a hill. I can't climb up the stairs. Mm. And there's tiredness of when you're being depressed and um, unmotivated and lack of energy, but you, it's not sleepiness because if you try to lay down to nap, you can't nap. And 
So that's a different type of fatigue. But sleepiness is a specific symptom of uh, you're sleepy, and given the opportunity, you could nap. And if you nap, short nap, you actually may feel a little bit better. So there's, so I think you need to ask yourself when you say you're tired, you need to ask yourself and you need to be asked, are you sleepy? And there's a question, there's a series of questions uh, embodied in what's called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. And think about the situations which will bring out your sleepiness. Like, uh, I just have it here with me. I'm just uh, sitting and reading, watching TV. If you're inactive in a meeting or a theater, would you, what's the likelihood you may nod off? If you're the passenger in a car for a long drive, would you nod off? If you lay down to take a nap, will you fall asleep? Uh, would you, are you so sleepy that you found yourself falling asleep while talking to somebody? And I did that uh, when I was uh, sleep-deprived as a critical care doctor. I, in my patients, uh, um, if, they, if I asked them a question and they didn't answer too quickly, I found myself nodding off. Um, you know, nodding for lunch, even if you haven't had a drink or... Uh, would you, can you, will you nod off at a stoplight, you know, or, or when traffic's really bad, stop and go traffic? Those are the situations where you're in a passive, unstimulated situation, and you will nod off. If you have those symptoms, uh, and we can quantitate it more formally in a scale, this Epworth sleepiness scale, if you, if, that's, if you were to nod off in those situations, you are sleepy and you have a sleep disorder by definition. So, so even if your doctor doesn't think you have a sleep disorder, if you if if your sleep <laughs> if your tiredness is sleepiness, you need to see a sleep doctor. Oh, that's an excellent tip and a good promotion. But but you know the more that uh, I speak with you about it, I realize the significance of the specialty, and I'm glad it's out there because so many of the things that we're learning about are at least in part related to sleep and sleep as part of a treatment anyway for many different things would certainly improve people. Uh, I would like to thank my very special guest, Dr. Andrew Binder, for sharing his expertise and wisdom with all of us. Uh, remember to tune in on Wednesdays to Trinity of Life uh, with Christina Suzuma. It's on 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, every Wednesday, and she has great guests, and I know there's going to be a great guest tomorrow. Uh, you can also reach us on Yoga Hub or YHTV and see some of our new live videos and some of the uh, archived videos, also in podcasts. At this time, I would like to thank all of my healers and all of my teachers for giving me their wisdom, and I look forward to spending time with you and Christina uh, next week. Uh, exploring another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you.